0: Are you ready for this? Ready. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the Device Talks Podcast. I know we didn't get one out to you last week. I apologize for that, but we'll get back on our weekly schedule. This week, I have an interview with Renee Ryan. Renee is the CEO of Kayla Health, which is a very cool neuromodulation company. I came to know Renee when she was an investor at Johnson & Johnson Development Development Corp, which is what she was doing prior to taking this uh, CEO role. So, I talked with Renee about this interesting transition and her path into medtech, which actually started in investment banking. Renee has a lot of great insights, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will too. Before we get into that conversation though, I wanted to let you know that you are missing out if you haven't been part of our Device Talks Tuesday's program. We've had four great events so far. Looking forward to many, many more, including an upcoming event where we'll talk about the challenges and opportunities presented by COVID-19 on uh, intellectual property. It's a great panel with some uh, attorneys from greenberg Traurig as well as a general counsel from Cantel Medical. So if you'd like more information on that event, go to devicetalks.com. You can find out who the speakers are, what the topics are, and of course, you can register there. You can also uh, listen on demand to our previous events, our Device Talks Tuesdays events. Lots of uh, great insights there on wearables and other topics, so please do check it out. Go to to devicetalks.com. All right, now let's get into this conversation with Renee Ryan. I spoke with Renee back in February, so we're dipping a little bit into the Device Talks time capsule, but it's a great conversation, a timeless conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it. Let's hear from Renee Ryan, CEO of Kayla Health. All right, well, Renee Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks
1: for having me, Tom.
0: Great to have you here. We've uh, It's been a few years since we've talked. The last time I spoke with you, you were a, a corporate VC. Now you're a startup CEO, uh, and I want to get into uh, that transition because it's an interesting one. But uh, we always sort of start off these conversations just learning a bit about uh, our guests and, and what led them to medtech. So did you always have uh, medtech on your mind as you were planning out your career?
1: So not at the outset. So when I came out of college, I was uh, I was very young when I went to college at 16 graduated okay. at 20 uh, and so the only thing that I knew coming out of college was that I was a good student and so I chose a path that would allow me to continue to learn and so evaluated going into investment banking and consulting and chose investment banking I worked at a boutique investment bank in San Francisco uh, that was focused solely in healthcare and technology and I was caught by the or I was bit by the healthcare bug very early on so one of the first transactions I worked on, was a financing for a biotechnology company. Mm-hmm. Um, and literally from that day forward, I became committed to healthcare and what I could do to help patients.
0: That's excellent. How did you enter college so early? What did you skip? What grade?
1: <laughs> I skipped kindergarten. I kindergarten? Guess I, could, I could put blocks together better than the other kids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So you uh, you entered first grade without any kind of uh, primer whatsoever. That's... Uh...
1: No, I, well, so my mom was my mom was a was a uh, single mom, working mom, and so she needed. I I guess there was a a daycare near her office that was full day, but then kindergarten would have been a half day. So she uh, she convinced the school that I needed to to be in school for the full day, and uh, you know bumped me up to first grade.
0: So the uh, the deal that you did, what was it about biotech and and medical tech that sort of? Uh... That, that that bit you, that gave you the bug, and that made you want to stay.
1: Well, so the, if you really want to know the truth, the, the company uh, was their first product they were working on was actually for pressure ulcers. Uh, so you know, for the elderly as they're laying in bed and they get those awful, you know, um, down to the bone kind of pressure ulcers. Um, and uh, but they had this whole pipeline of other opportunities, including eventually, uh, early in their pipeline was a drug uh, for the treatment of congestive heart failure. And so really understanding the platform that this company had, and it had this whole array of diseases and conditions that again, I was a student and I was good at being a student. I got to learn about, uh, when you actually roll forward the clock, some, you know, 15 plus years later, um, that drug was, um, a drug that a company at that time named Sios brought to market for congestive heart failure that J&J acquired that company, uh, longer, it, you know, Later in its history, um, and from my perspective, to be just one little piece of solving such an important need in the market um, for congestive heart failure patients, or even you know any of the patients that we that we can touch every day, um, was really meaningful to me.
0: And did you also enjoy the uh, the deal part of the job in, in in banking? And what was it about that that uh, that appealed to you?
1: Well, you know, I, at the core, I probably am a deal junkie, um, and. Mm. And loved the idea of transforming businesses, and whether it was, you know, and I, I was at some of the larger banks, at Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse, I worked on, you know, huge mergers of large, equal size type companies, um, and and worked on how those, you know, synergies would come into play. But when you work in the emerging growth area, uh, like I, where I started in my career and ultimately where I ended, a lot of it was taking a breakthrough innovation technology and putting it into a larger channel. So that company or that technology had the ability to impact more and more patients. That part of it was very interesting to me and to really look at those long-term opportunities of channel access for startup companies.
0: But did you see the deal part? You're a deal junkie, so I guess you you, you obviously enjoy finding them and assembling them, but did you see that as being a, uh, a long-term path for you or did you really have a desire early on to, uh, oh. to get deeper into the business?
1: Um, well, so I, I kind of did the full arc in investment banking. So I started at the juniorist level, which is the analyst um, who's doing all the grunt work of building the models and writing the memos and, and, and doing all the, the work there through to, you know, scaled through associate to vice president and ultimately became a partner. So I was a partner at the last two banks that I worked at. And that's a different job, right? That is, yes, being the sort of senior states person, you know, senior um, person to come in and win the business. Um, Mm -hmm. but you're away from the day in day execution of the deals. Um, and you're then at that point shaping a group and building a team and building a firm. Um, so a little bit of a different challenge. Um, you know, more akin to what I'm doing as a CEO and leading a company, right? Overseeing sort of a group of very talented individuals, um, to execute on their, on their business plans and opportunities. So I didn't know what was after investment banking, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I kind of, I kind of put my head down. Uh, and marched through uh, 16 years or so of doing investment banking. Took a side trip to get a to get an MBA, um, but all of my investment banking career was spent in healthcare, and importantly, even on the more product side of healthcare. So, biotech, medical devices, health tech, digital health—that was all the area that I focused on, um, because from my perspective, that was where. You got to touch patients really more directly.
0: It's an unusual path, though. I mean, there are some who have made the leap from banking to uh, to VCs, obviously, and, and fewer they think that would actually get into into management. What uh, what skill sets did you develop as a banker that uh, that you use today?
1: Probably listening. Um, I, I call it my secret power because if you really listen, if you're an M and A banker and you're really listening to what is driving a decision. Oftentimes, it's really not about the numbers. It's actually about the the people and the needs of the people, the needs of the team, the needs of the business. Um, and so I, I do pride myself on my listening skills. That also helped me, by the way, as my I spent eight years at J&J building out their uh, medical technology investments and you know, building companies for them. Um, and listening has, has served me well through my whole career.
0: It's fascinating. So is it listening to the person's personal needs, their desire to slow down a bit, retire, or their desire to, to ramp up the company? Or is it just listening really to what the company's needs are? Or are those the same thing?
1: Um, I, I think it's, there's listening for what's being said. There's listening for what's not being said. And then importantly, when you think about, you know, doing a transaction, whether it's an IPO, you're funding the company for the next wave of growth. Um, really understanding, you know, how prepared that company is to take that leap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and sometimes there, there are weaknesses. I mean, that's why you have a whole risk factor, risk factors section in an IPO prospectus, right? It's to disclose where the company does have its weaknesses and where it needs to shore up its activities. Every company has them. It's just how you lean into them and, and own them that gets you through.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did you make that or why did you make that change to, uh, to J and J?
1: I, was ready for a change. Uh, as I said, I sort of did the full arc of investment banking. I could have stayed being a partner. It's a very lucrative path. Um, but I was ready for a new challenge and, an, and a new way of, of engaging with companies. Um, I always said that investment bankers were the last thing, but either before lunch that the board would go and rush to, to eat their food or till the, you know, to their car service, uh, to all the board members running to their black cars waiting in the parking lot. And so I believed and I went to prove my thesis that I had more to offer a company as a sort of a full person versus just the investment banker side of me. And so going to J&J, becoming an investor, investing in strategically important uh, companies for J&J and sitting on the boards as the J&J representative was uh, kind of what my goal was in doing that move.
0: And what did you see your role at, uh, at J&J being? Were you, were you building out the medical device practice? What what sort of operation did you, did you come into?
1: I came into a group, uh, that at the time, this was before J&J had opened up their global innovation center hubs in the, in the four regions of the, of the world. Um, we were still, JJDC was a, uh, had a long history and it was founded in 1973. Mm -hmm. So it was the longest standing corporate venturing group ever. Um, and then obviously specifically in healthcare, it had amazing reputation and history to it. And so I came in, uh, at a fairly senior level to be their West Coast. Um, medical health, you know, medical technology investor. And um, we had begun to ramp up some activities in the Asia Pacific region, but weren't ready to actually deploy direct resources to staff up a medical device investor yet. So I oversaw the Asia Pacific as well. And then importantly, about kind of three years into my time at J&J, what I really began to understand was that big companies don't necessarily have um, a cash problem, right, in terms of the, the cash available to make investments. What they really have is more of an innovation problem. And so Mm -hmm. I really set my mind to, um, instead of just investing in what walked through the door, was there a way that we could um, create our own opportunities? And so the first company that I set about starting, which was 15 months of very intense efforts and labor, uh, was Verb Surgical, which was the collaboration between Google, Verily, and uh, J&J's Ethicon business in the field of surgical robotics. So you know, big heavy lift uh, to get that company off the ground. But obviously, now with J and J recently announcing that it's acquiring Verb, a very mm-hmm. successful and very important um, opportunity for us to go and develop something outside of the four walls in J- of J and J that ultimately they can bring in and, and put as part of their future.
0: Did Verb become what you thought it would be when it when it started?
1: It did. You know, the vision, um, the vision of Verb was was really much broader than just being a surgical robotics company. It was really the vision of the OR for the 21st century or digital surgery and really being able to capture all of the important insights, uh, not just the data, but the insights that are generated within the surgical theater. And it's a really special environment between, you know, patient and physician. And so, you know, even its, its earliest in, incarnation, that was the mission and, and the vision. And I think J&J still carries that forward. I also was part of the, um, Investment that J and J did in Oris um, before they acquired that platform, which obviously their first go-to-market um, robotic surgical platform is for uh, endoluminal type procedures. So mm-hmm. much more of a flexible robotic platform versus what Verb was creating in more traditional surgical robotics. So very complementary, but also again very important to fully shape the future of digital surgery.
0: And how different were the different uh, cultures that you brought together? to form verb and and what was that, that process not like?
1: Well, you had a, you know, 150 plus year old company um, coming to the table with a, you know, 10 to 15 year old company. Um, So uh, both had uh, their challenges because they're both very large companies. Um, But the important part of what we did was we kept focused on standing up NUCO between these two parents. So the idea was bringing the best of what J&J brought to the table, bringing the best of what Google and Verily brought to the table, but allowing the new code to stand up in between the two and be successful on its own. And so when you think about um, us partnering with Verily and Google, you know, we had uh, J&J had funded uh, some of the development work at SRI where the original uh, intuitive surgical robot was, was also developed. Mm -hmm. And so the the beauty of what J and J brought to the table was an immense amount of clinical context, right? Um, the as I mentioned, the OR is a sacred place, and J and J, because of our you know incredible their their incredible long history in surgery, really had insights and um, uh, clinical context knowledge that they brought to the table. And on the flip side, um, you know, keenly put that it was titled Digital Surgery for a reason that we needed to bring the best of digital and robotics and machine learning type capabilities um, from a partner like Google to the table to allow the company to be successful. So we focused on the good, not the bad.
0: Interesting. And did the, um, well looking today at where we are with, with digital surgery and with the interest of of the Googles and the Amazon the like, how would you evaluate their understanding of, I guess the operating room suite, but also healthcare in general. Do you are they are they coming up to speed and do you expect them to be even bigger players going forward as, as many people do?
1: Yeah. I, I would absolutely concur with that. I mean, that to me is um the importance of partnering with them versus trying to compete with them, right? I mean, these these companies have incredible depth of capabilities and knowledge and sheer willpower. Um so from, from my perspective, it was important to, to reach out, reach across the aisle, and partner with the tech leaders um, rather than trying to compete, necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you started a, a few other new co's as well, correct?
1: I did. And actually, you know, in that journey, Cala was one of those that uh, I met Kate Rosenbluth, the founder of Cala, um, at, um, at a meeting at Stanford Biodesign. I actually had, had not run across her but in, my pri- in our prior history. And was really compelled by what she was doing, and encouraged her to start Cala. And so I led the Series A and helped her, to, you know, pull the technology out of Stanford and, and get us started.
0: So was this something at the time that you saw as a uh, as primarily or exclusively an investment, or, or was this a, of the newcos you started? Did this one auto, automatically or already have a special place in your heart?
1: So, um, you know. Look at the history of J and J has a very long history of making successful investments in neuromodulation. So we had invested in Nevro and CVRX and Spinal Mod and Inspire and and uh, I was at the time on the board. I still am on the board of Neuropace, which is an implantable uh, neurostimulator for the treatment of epilepsy. And what's unique about Neuropace is that what they are doing is they are they're um, responsive. So they're actually pinging the brain looking for seizure activity, and Mm -hmm. then applying the the electrical uh, stimulation to neutralize um, the erratic seizure behavior, right? If you think about what Kala is doing, Kala is responding to a patient's tremor and sending electrical signals, but we're doing it through body-worn electronics. We don't need to have a surgical implant to, to deliver our therapy. So it was really the first time after having this long history of seeing opportunities in implantable neuromodulation that we saw doing the same idea of delivering electricity as medicine, but in a wearable technology. So really, really breakthrough uh, from that perspective.
0: That's terrific. Well, let's take a moment and just uh, introduce us to Calla. So uh, what was the initial concept that Kate brought to you? And does that represent what you have today? Is Is that represented in what you have today?
1: Yeah. So Tom, it's funny. Actually, Cala is one of those unique companies that actually uh is executing on the vision that they set out to at the beginning. And so uh Kate came forward presenting a technology that would be delivering electrical signals much like implantable neuromodulation technologies, but in a body-worn elect- you know, body-worn electronics. And so um having known uh responsive neuromodulation through the work I had done with NeuroPace, I was on the board, I still sit on the board of NeuroPace, and knowing the 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 tremendous impact of responding to a body sending off a signal that Neuropace delivers through their RNS system for epilepsy, it was very akin to what Kate was doing with with the Cala Trio technology. And so um, early days, it was really about collecting the clinical data. We had a belief that ultimately the go-to-market model for the Cala technology was going to be by putting the patient at the center. And so along that journey, we discovered that we would be regulated um, or reimbursed a like a durable medical equipment uh, technology. So we filed for our picks application with Medicare. We have a stimulator and then a replenishable band uh, as our solution. Um, and we have the patient, again, at the center of our care where the patient receives a prescription for their device. And then we sh- drop ship. Uh, once we get the prescription, we drop ship to the patient directly and then we service them either through bringing them on board through phone calls or we have on-site on our website uh, video training for a patient to engage or they can even read the brochure and train themselves on how to use the technology. And then every three months, we fulfill them with a new band. Uh, so a, a very nice patient-centric business model is, is what we're pursuing.
0: And how did you get – what sort of approval did you need from the FDA and, and how did you obtain that so quickly?
1: So we uh, actually got a Genovo 510K. Um, and the good news is what that says is that no one's done this before and that we have a unique proprietary device. Uh, and we got uh, the approval uh, based on some very short acute studies that we ran. Um, and we also got the approval on the stimulator that we deliver today, but using a different interface. We actually used uh, single-use electrodes. Uh, more like hydrogels, which you often see in other, um, electrical connectivity to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and the real innovation was after we got our first de novo approval, we got that back in April of 2018. We actually took the next, um, year, or year and a half, um, really understanding how we could do it with a dry electrode so that we could make our band part of our solution, um, our connector part with the electrodes in it much more durable. Um, so as to not have the patients have to put new hydrogels on the body and have it be sticky and messy every day. And so ultimately the Calatrio which is the device we launched last year, has exactly that. It has a 90-day durable um, band uh, that we replenish. Um, and that's where the electrodes are placed.
0: And you launched this last year, correct?
1: We did. We shipped our first product on September 4th of 2019.
0: So how is this sold and, and uh, marketed, and what was the, uh, the first quarter of sales like?
1: So uh, we are working hard on uh, reimbursement. Uh, most of our patients are of Medicare age, so we're focused initially on Medicare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now we're in a cash pay mode, and we have only, only soft launched into three territories. So we're in California, uh, the state of Washington, and in Texas. And so uh, we very specifically started very small because we wanted to be able to test and measure and, and fail fast and do all the things that a startup uh, should be doing in the earliest of days. And so we only today have one uh, sales representative in the field. We're growing that this quarter. Um, but we started small with one sales rep. And then we actually went fully digital here in the state of California. So we use paid search and uh, social media uh, outreach to patients. And we offer them the ability to download a doctor discussion guide to go and ultimately seek uh, a prescription from their own doctor on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Or we also offer a telemedicine option uh, so a patient can make an appointment, see our telemedicine physician here in California, and uh, get a prescription that way. So early days, but the uh, prescription uh, uh, flow has been strong from each of the three markets
0: who would prescribe this and what efforts what efforts are you making to to reach out to those specialists and to tell them about the Calatrio
1: yeah good question so um for a startup company what's exciting about what cala is doing is that the market of the clinicians that we're activating uh is actually very targetable it's uh, primarily movement disorder specialists uh and there is uh, about 150 high volume movement disorder centers across the US So very targeted, very doable from, uh, you know, finding these physicians. Um, the broader set of doctors that we, uh, can detail, uh, include neurologists. And so many of those doctors are not used to having a device solution, uh, in their, uh, in their, um, you know, skill set or in their, in their, you know, pharmacy. They're used to prescribing drugs. So we've made it very easy to fit into their traditional, um, practice models, right? We give them a a Calatrio prescription pad. They fill out whether it's a right or a left hand dominant device. And then there's three sizes of bands, small, medium, and large that they size for the patient and then send us in that prescription.
0: And then you deliver that directly to the patient via mail? Yes.
1: Yes. So today, since we, since we are, since we are offering a, a cash pay solution for certain qualified patients, we interface directly with the patients. And so the prescription will come to us. We will, uh, you know, ensure that it's complete. Sometimes we have to call the physician's office to get, you know, the final details to complete the prescription. And then we contact the patient directly and fulfill it directly with the patient. So it's interesting because we have um, all of the components of a a, a sort of more traditional J&J type business model, right? We have drug, which is our electricity Mm -hmm. is our drug. We have a device. That's the form factor that the patient unboxes the device when they get home. But then they ultimately wear the technology, much like a consumer electronics. It's worn at the wrist, um, a little bit larger, not much, but a little bit larger than an Apple watch. Um, and they press the button on the device to deliver their own therapy. And so they're really in control of their usage of the technology.
0: And again, what was it about this opportunity that, uh, that convinced you to kind of leave, leave JJ and, and, and take the helm of a startup?
1: Well, what was interesting is that the board had decided, um, About six months before I raised my hand that we were going to bring in a new, more commercial oriented leader. Mm -hmm. And when you really actually took a look at what Calla was doing, um, there's not a lot of people who have this kind of experience in terms of this is a market creation exercise. We're not just selling a better blank into an existing channel. We're creating the channel. We're creating the conversation with a doctor that's normally used to prescribing um, drugs to treat these patients, to have them opt for choosing a device solution. And so uh, it's much more of a market creation exercise. Not a lot of people have done that. There's a lot of consumer medical devices, like we have reference points into the world of insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors. Those are things that we ping off of and watch closely. But again, this is a a sold into the neurologist, which is a different call point uh, that's never had this kind of solution before.
0: And what has the uh, experience like been being in charge? You, you mentioned earlier on that uh, your time as a as a banker taught you to listen. How has that been applied to your your leading the company? And, and what other skill sets have you picked up uh, in the time you've been there?
1: So I've been at the helm for about five months, um, and I will tell you, I did not tell people about my secret power of my listening skills. <laughs> when I first started, I kept that, I kept that secret, but what it actually has afforded me um, uh, a really great onboarding and learning a lot, uh, listening to everybody, not just my senior leadership team, but really listening to the employees. Um, we have an amazing customer success team that talks to patients every day. I mean, the, and the insights you can get um, from those interactions are just phenomenal. Um, and so uh, I continue to hone my listening skills. Uh, I am building the team. We have uh, a lot of work to do to build out the commercial engine here. Importantly as well, since we're serving the patients directly, activities like um, a customer success uh, facing team and um, the right kind of digital marketing capabilities, all of that is what we're building. Um, And that to me is fun, right? It's fun to go out and build a company and um, get people to to join us on this mission. Um, And that's what's been exciting.
0: In one uh, population you certainly have to listen to are your investors. I know the company raised $50 million earlier in 2019. Was that prior to your coming on board?
1: It was. Uh, that uh, financing closed in May of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I took uh, took over as CEO and, and Kate moved into the CSO role in August. Um, but, was, but it's interesting because... You know, we have a phenomenal investor base. I, uh, J&J do. was part of the Series A. We co-led, J, the J&J co-led with Lux Capital. Um, they every, every investor has continued to support the company. In our Series B, we uh, raised capital from an additional four strategic investors. So we went mm-hmm. from having one to having five overnight. Um, so we now have uh, the Action Potential Fund out of GSK, um, uh, Novartis through DRX and Qualcomm. Um, invested as did Google Ventures, GV, mm-hmm. um, and so the the Series C was led by uh, f- more financial oriented folks at Baird and Reimagined Ventures. Um, but we continue to have an um, uh, amazing support from our strategic uh, folks as well.
0: And what did your time at a strategic teach you to do as a CEO? What what lessons now that you're on the other side of the table? How do you best communicate with that many strategic? Because there's Five companies; they all have slightly different businesses and, and definitely different priorities. What's the best way a CEO can can work to to make all of those parties happy with the progress?
1: Uh, well, it's never easy when you have you know uh, the long list of investors that we have, right? So the sheer mm-hmm. number is is seemingly daunting. What I will say this is this though is that um, you know the transparency goes both ways, right? In terms of I am very open with our investors about where uh, where we need help, where we you know, you know we don't have necessarily the deep bench in certain areas. Like notably, right now we're working hard on reimbursement, and that's an area where especially the strategics have incredible depth of knowledge and can really bring um, resources to bear and help us with just advice and insights. And so we tend to um, be very open with all of our you know, all of our investors, but on the strategic side especially. In in seeking their input, uh, so that we can be guided in the right way.
0: And do you try to gain insights from the parent companies as well? Is that something that CEOs, when courting strategic investors, what should what should they expect from that relationship? Is it just a relationship with the with the partner representing the company, or is it a, a deeper relationship with the with the parent company as well?
1: And uh, from my perspective, it has to be the deeper relationship with the parent, right? I mean, I, I, was, I was the investor, but I, de- I never had all the answers, right? And so mm-hmm. important as when I was an investor at j and J, I I actually set up direct con- uh, connections between my portfolio company CEOs and the business unit uh, that was most relevant for them so that they could ask for that help more directly. And so um, I still have that with, with some of our strategic investors here at Cala where we get that direct support. And if we need something new, we go through the investor and we typically get it. So um, I think it's a it's a very open and healthy relationship. And all of my strategics, um, in none, we have no extra partnerships with any of them. Um, so it's all very much an even playing field.
0: Excellent. Well, we've gone from banker to investor to CEO. I can't wait to see what's next. What's the next stage for uh, Rene Ryan? i am got to keep
1: you on your toes, Tom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Going back to med school or becoming an engineer. I guess those are your choices. Well, thanks for uh, bringing us up to date and thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Take care. All
0: right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please do us a few favors. Number one, subscribe to this podcast so we can send future episodes directly to you. Number two, share this podcast. Share it on LinkedIn. Share it on Twitter. I am on both. My podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, is on both. I am at Tom. Chris is at New Marker as in a new marker. So uh, tag us there or on LinkedIn. You can find us both there as well. We would love to be part of these conversations. Finally, reach out with any thoughts you have about the Device Talks programs. You can find me through both those social media channels, but you can also shoot me an email. My email is tsalemi, that's T-S-A-L-E-M-I at WTWHmedia.com. And, of course, you can find Chris Newmarker there as well. You can shoot him an email if you have some news to break or a story to tell. He is at cneumarker at wtwhmedia.com. We'd love to hear from folks in the medtech realm, so please do reach out. That's it. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast.